Kings, again, a continuation of, of, um, of or Second Kings, a continuation of First Kings. And um, as we pick it up in ch chapter 1, we're going to see that Azariah is the king of Israel. Now, you recall that First Kings began with David on his deathbed. It's about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. The reason was is because David was a man after God's own heart, and we see that the kings, particularly of Judah, are measured up to David. And the reason was because David was one that was devoted to the Lord. He never bowed the knee to an idol. And uh, so David, as he uh, would rule for 40 years, uh, as he dies, he leaves the nation very strong. It's very prosperous. It's very powerful. He defeats his enemy all around him. And he makes way for his son Solomon to come on the scene and to rule during that time of Israel's greatest prosperity and power. And um, we know peace would be uh, about in Solomon's reign. So Solomon was the one that would build the temple. And we saw in the first part of 1 Kings that the temple was a very magnificent structure that Solomon built. The description is given to us, the details, how he overlaid everything with gold, uh, how he even made the floors of gold. It was an incredible project as 80,000 people were there in the quarries uh, chipping and, and chiseling uh, to make the stones. Uh, there were another 70,000 that carried the stones down to the temple proper where they were placed uh, together and fit together perfectly. There was 30,000 men that were going off to Lebanon and getting cedar wood, um, the trees that would float down the Mediterranean to the coast of Israel, to Joppa, and then over to Israel. So it was a massive project, and they were able to do that because there was peace in the land, because David had defeated all of his enemies all around him. So Solomon started out very well, as we know. Solomon asked for wisdom from God, and God was pleased that Solomon did that. And the Lord would give Solomon great wisdom. But it's interesting, isn't it, that as Solomon would, after the building of the temple, would pursue his building projects, he ended up uh, really uh, not showing wisdom because what he did was is that he would go against God's word. He multiplied horses, which the king was not to do according to the book of Deuteronomy. He multiplied gold, and he had these ships going off to India and other places to, to get gold. Um, he was multiplying gold. Silver was so abundant that its value was like rocks in Jerusalem, is what the scripture says. And then he also multiplied wives. He had a thousand wives and concubines. And we know at the end of Solomon's reign that he began to worship idols. And the reason was is because these wives that he married, many of them were foreign wives that came from a pagan background. And so he would bow the knee to these pagan gods because of those foreign wives that introduced idol worship back into the land. As a matter of fact, it was Solomon that actually built temples to those foreign gods and burnt incense to them. So God would come to Solomon and say, Solomon, the nation is going to split, not in your day, but in your son's day. And so Solomon was rebuked by the Lord. We know that after the death of Solomon, Solomon, he reigned for 40 years. So David, after his reign of 40 years, he left the nation united and very strong and prosperous. Solomon, after he reigned for 40 years, unfortunately, he left the nation weak spiritually and also divided. So Solomon's son comes on the scene, Rehoboam, and you recall that the people came to Rehoboam and said, listen, can you ease up on the taxes that your father put on us? It was a heavy burden. It's too much. Ease up on us. And Rehoboam said, no, I'm not going to do that. And you recall at that time that the 10 northern tribes would break away from Judah and Benjamin. So now we have the nation that is split. There's a house of Israel up north which is the ten northern tribes called the House of Israel. Then the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, down south called the House of Judah. So as we go through 1 Kings and continue into 2 Kings now, that sometimes is talking about the kings of Israel. And the first king was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam comes on the scene. He's the first king uh, of the ten northern tribes. And the Lord would come and give that covenant to Jeroboam. Jeroboam, that if you follow after me, then I'll establish your throne. I'll establish your name, and I will bless you. But if not, judgment's going to come to you. 
and Jeroboam would plunge the house of Israel into idol worship as he built a house de a temple, two of them, dedicated to the golden calf, one in the very northern part of the country in Dan, and then the other one in Bethel. And he told the people, listen, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to the temple, Solomon's temple and worship. It's too far. And Jeroboam, he did that because he did not want the people of Israel to go to Judah. Then they're going to want to unite with Judah once again, and they'll kill me, and I don't want that. So I'll make two temples. He, again, made them dedicated to the golden calf. So at that time, Israel is plunged into idol worship, and the successive kings that followed Jeroboam would be idol worshipers as well. And as we were concluding 1 Kings, we saw that Ahab, that he was the king at the time that a prophet comes along and all the darkness has taken place, and his name is Elijah. And of course, Elijah, the fiery prophet, will call down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Uh, he's the one that shut up the rains, and he's ministering, and we're going to see that he's going to continue to minister. And then in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, he's going to be taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. So Ahab was the king as, as we were concluding 1 Kings. And Ahab would be killed, the last chapter of 1 Kings, as you recall, in battle in chapter 22 of 1 Kings by the Syrians. Uh, and as judgment was pronounced upon Ahab, he was a wicked king. He plunged the nation deep into Baal worship. He had made Samaria the capital of the ten northern tribes. And he built this temple dedicated to Baal. And when Ahab is killed, as we saw last week in chapter 22 of 1 Kings, then his son Azariah is now reigning. And it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father, in the way of his mother, in the way of Jeroboam the son. And he also served Baal and worshipped him. So here is Azariah. He's not only encouraging this, this worshipping at the temple of the golden calves, but also Baal worship as well. So let's pick up uh, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Again, just a continuation of these kings that rule in Israel. And then also it will talk about the kings that rule in Judah as well. But first we're going to talk about Azariah, the king of Israel, as Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So Ahab, that wicked king, is dead as we end it first kings. And Azariah, his son, is now the king of Israel. And he is a, a wicked king as well. Matter of fact, all the kings of Israel, there were 19 kings, if you count them up, and every single one of them were bad kings. And he was a worshiper of Baal. And we know that, as verse 1 tells us here, that Moab begins to rebel. Now, to go back to when David was defeating his enemies all around him, you recall that in 2 Samuel chapter 8, that David defeated the Moabites. And he put them under his authority and he taxed them. And when the kingdom was divided, the Moabites were under the authority of Israel. So the northern nation uh, had this taxation that continued against Moab. And now that Ahab is dead, Israel is becoming uh, weaker. And this is a chance for Moab to rebel. And, and we will see that when we get to chapter 3. But verse 2, Now Azariah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured, so he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I should recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? And so Azariah the king falls through the lattice. He has a serious injury, and he sends his messengers to go to Ekron. Now, you might recall in our study of First and Second Samuel that when David was ruling, and even before David, when Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, was anointed king, and then God would end up rejecting him, but Saul and David, their main enemies was the Philistines. And the Philistines would uh, occupy that area on the west coast of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. And there was five major cities of the Philistines. Gath was one of them. And you recall that it was Goliath, the champion. He was from Gath. 
Ekron was another one of the major cities of the Philistines. Now the Philistines have pretty much been done away with, but there's still those cities. And here is uh, this city in that area of Philistine, Ekron, where there is a temple that has been built to um, Beelzebub. And Beelzebub uh, was a reference uh, to the Lord of the Flies. Matter of fact, when you go to the New Testament, you see that it was the religious leaders that was calling Jesus Beelzebub, that he does his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, that is, the Lord of the flies, under the power of Satan. And, of course, Jesus would rebuke the religious leaders in their you know, nonsense as they were calling Jesus, that you work power you know, by the power of Satan and uh, casting out demons. And Jesus said, that doesn't even make sense. Uh, uh, house divided cannot stand. But it is this temple that was there. And so Azariah, he is sending his servants to go to that pagan temple in Ekron to inquire of that pagan god to see whether he's going to live or not. And on the way, all of a sudden, Elijah shows up. And he says to the messengers, you know, is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of this false god? It was a rebuke to Azariah. Don't you know that there is a true and a living god? And you recall that as we saw and talked about quite extensively with Ahab, his father, that God did show himself strong and truthfully to Ahab, but Ahab refused to repent, to give, give up his Baal worship, to give up his you know, wicked acts and his wife Jezebel as well. And God would bring that judgment upon Ahab. And Azariah here, we see that Elijah is saying, listen, the God of Israel is the true and living God. You should be turning to him. You should be repenting to him is what you should be doing. And that's what Elijah is saying to him. Isn't there a God in Israel? And why you inquire of this Beelzebub, the God of, um, of Ekron? Um, and so we read in verse 4, Now therefore thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And so this message that was to be given to Azariah by Elijah, that it's not good for you. You're going to end up dying. You're not going to rise up from your bed. And so Elijah would depart. In verse 5, And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore you should not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. In verse 7, Then he said to them, What kind of man was it that came up to meet you and told you these words? And so they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. And so the messengers returned quickly. Azariah knows that they didn't go all the way to Akron because to go from the northern part of the country over to the coast would have taken a few days and then a few days to get back. So somehow, Azariah, he knows that the trip's been cut short. Why are you back? Well, we met this hairy guy, you know, and he... he it's speaking of hairy garment, obviously, that he's wearing, probably much like John the Baptist who wore, you know, camel skin. And, uh, and it would be Elijah probably wearing camel skin as well and a leather belt, much like John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Probably all of you have seen a camel. I don't think there's anybody who looks at a camel and says, that would make a great garment, you know, uh, camel's hair. It's itchy, it's ugly, but yet... Here, these guys are wearing these camel skins, and it was indicative that they were poor with John the Baptist and probably Elijah didn't have a lot. So it's Elijah. That's the only hairy guy that I know, Azariah is saying, as they come back. And uh, so he knows that it's Elijah the prophet with this message. But I just wanted to just make some application here, because even though it seemed like that Elijah's there, there are others that are ministering, that here's Azariah thinking, you know what, it's Elijah. He was a pain to my father. And he's the one guy that I know that would give a message like this. And maybe wherever God has you, whether it's at the workplace or whether it's in your, even in your own family, maybe you're the only Christian in your own family. Maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace. And maybe others say, oh, they're always talking about Jesus. They're talking about the Bible and the truth. That you continue to minister 
to the people that are linked to you in your life, whether it's family members or coworkers or those who live next to you, that they may say, you know what, that Christian, I know them, and, and I know that they speak truth, and they, they speak you know, the things of God, and uh, they may not like it, but they know that there's something different about you, and that's because you have the reality of Jesus that is being worked out in your life, and also you have the Word of God that is in your heart. And so here is Elijah, just being a light in this dark, dark you know, nation and all the things that are going on. In verse 9, we continue reading, Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him, and there he was sitting on top of a hill, and he spoke to a man of God. The king has said, Come down. So Elijah is sitting on top of a hill. The king sends a captain with 50 soldiers to go and get Elijah. I want to see him. Uh, you know, uh, I'm tired of him. I'm tired of his messages. You go and arrest Elijah and bring him to me. And so these uh, guys come, and the captain yells up to Elijah and says, Man of God, come down. Now, a couple things here. One is, when people address you, they're going to address you by your name. But they, do they say, that's a man of God, that's a woman of God? You may be known by a name. All of us do have a name. You may be known as, you know, whatever you do is, a, you know, in your profession. Um, but do people look at you? And do they see you? And do they say that that's a man of God? Do they say that that's a woman of God? Because they have the word of God in their heart because of the way that they live. And that's my prayer. That people would look at you in your life and you see, being a witness to others is not just what we speak, but also how we live. And we can touch people's lives as we are just being a witness with our lives and with the words that we speak. And they will say that there's a man of God, there's a woman of God. I recognize that, the reality of Jesus in their lives. So come down here. Come down right now. And you can just sense the urgency. It does remind me of when Nehemiah was up on the wall. Here is Elijah, he's up on this hill, and the soldier's saying, come on down here. It reminds me of Nehemiah, who was up on the wall. You recall that after the captivity of Babylon, that it would be Nehemiah that would come back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, because Jerusalem still laid in rubble after the captives were coming back from that captivity of Babylon. And we know that Nehemiah, he's building a wall, and the men have a trial in one hand, they have a sword in the other hand, and there were those, uh, Sanballat and, and Tobiah and Geshem, that were the enemies of God, discouraging the work that was going on, uh, being threatening uh, and saying threatening things to uh, the people of Judah that were coming back and building the wall, and Nehemiah, and they would give a message to Nehemiah, uh, these guys, Tobiah and uh, Sanballat and Geshem, and say, Nehemiah, come down off the wall, and we need to talk about this, and come down and discuss this whole thing with us. And Nehemiah said, no, I'm not going to come down off the wall. I'm going to continue doing the work of the Lord. And you see, there are those in the world, and there are those that will come to you and to me as we desire to walk with the Lord, a life pleasing to Him, and as we are serving the Lord, and they will say, come down. Come down from what you're doing. And there can be a lot of distractions that take you away from just continuing in the things of God and in service to God. And Nehemiah said, I'm not going to come down. And he continued to build a wall. He had the men stationed with a trial in one hand and a sword in the other. Trial, they were doing the work of the Lord and the sword to defend themselves. And you continue doing the things of God. And beware of the distractions that can come along, those of the world and others. You know, the enemies of God that will say, don't serve the Lord. Don't, you know, be doing that. You need to stop trying to discourage you. And you and I need to be ones that we stand and say no, because I'm going to continue the work of the Lord. I got a trial in one hand, and I got the sword of the Spirit in the other, which is the Word of God. I'm going to continue to grow in the Word of God. And I'm not going to come down off the wall, whatever that might mean for you. As a mom, perhaps, as you're taking care of your children, and as you're raising them in the ways of the Lord, and dads, as you're providing for your kids, and, and you're going home and you're saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, and we're going to be dedicated to the Lord. As you're ministering to others, maybe in some way, whatever that might mean for you, you continue in the things of God, and that you beware of those who will say, come down, 
don't do it. Stop serving the Lord. You keep serving the Lord. And here's Elijah. They're saying, you know, come down. And Elijah, as it says, that in verse 10, he answered and said to the captain of 50, if I have a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven, consumed him and his 50 men. So fire comes down, consumes them. Elijah didn't come down, but fire did. And so we see here that Elijah, as he is being faithful to God, God was taking care of him. In verse 11, then he sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, man of God, thus is the king said, come down quickly. Verse 12, so Elijah answered and said to them, If I have a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So this fiery prophet continues to call down fire from heaven to consume another group, uh, captain and his 50 men. But notice that here, that the demands get more um, greater and um, it's more demanding, more bold. Come down quickly. Come down now. And you see, that's what the enemy will do. The enemy, his requests, his attacks against you at times are going to be more demanding, more bold, as Satan comes trying, desiring to get more demanding. And fire comes down and consumes them. And then in verse 13, again, he sent a third captain of 50 and his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 men went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s with their 50s and let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Come down, uh, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he rose and went down with him to the king. So this guy, the third company of 50, this guy, the captain, humbles himself. And he says, Spare my life. And Elijah goes with him. You know, coming to Christ, judgment is going to come to those who have rejected Jesus Christ. But it just reminds me how important that as we give a salvation message and the gospel to others, that we want to tell them that they need to humble themselves and recognize that they need the grace and the mercy of the Lord and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. To humble themselves in childlike faith, recognizing that they are a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of the messages that we need to make sure that as we share with others and we may have opportunities, because listen, the holidays will be coming up pretty soon. And in a few weeks, we'll be getting ready for Thanksgiving in another month, and then the Christmas season will begin. And as we are looking for the holidays, and we gather with friends and families, we have opportunity oftentimes to share with them about Jesus and why he came. And he's the only one that died for you. And he's the only one that bore your sins. He's the only one that rose from the grave. And he is the Savior of the world, not a Savior of the world. And as you humble yourself and come to him, that you can receive forgiveness of sin. And you can come into right relationship with the Father and have the hope of heaven. I pray that that's the message that we give to others is, you know, we are going to be entering into the holiday season as we have opportunities to share with others that humble themselves. And when you sense this humbling that's taken place, share with people and, 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 and go with them and minister to them and be able to give them the good news that you know about. So this guy, he, he humbles himself. And so we read in verse 16 as we finish the chapter, then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, as Elijah goes to Azariah, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, it is because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word. Therefore you shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Azariah died according to the word of the Lord, because Elijah has spoken, because he had no son. Jeroram became king in his place. In the second year, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah, which he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So we see here that Azariah, Ahab's son, he has no son, so it goes to his brother, Jehoram, and now he's the king of Israel. Also, the same name, Jehoram, is the king of Judah at this time, so don't be confused. But as we move into chapter 2, and it came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went 
with Elisha from Gilgal. So here it is that in this chapter, it's a familiar story that we're going to see that Elijah, that he is going to be taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. And it's a wonderful, wonderful picture, I believe, of, of the rapture of the church. That one day the Lord's going to take a generation of believers up to heaven, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us. So Elijah is going to be raptured up, and, uh, and he is with Elijah. Now you might recall that in 1 Kings chapter 19, that Elijah was at the mountain of God. And Elijah was told to go and to anoint Elisha, because he's going to take over the prophetic ministry. And um, so uh, the Lord told Elijah uh, to do that. He anoints Elisha. He's been ministering to Elisha during this time, mentoring him during this time. And now it's time for Elisha to take over the prophetic office, um, be the main prophet for Israel. And that's about ready to happen. And so verse 2, as we read, that Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. So what's interesting is that it was common knowledge amongst the uh, not only Elisha and Elijah, but also the sons of the prophet. And it is also common knowledge with you and me, isn't it? Because God's word declares it, that one day that the Lord is going to come for his church. That as Paul writes, that he is going to come and descend into the earth's atmosphere. And at that time, as Paul says, that at the sound of the last trump and the twinkle of an eye, we shall be caught up with the Lord to meet him in the air. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And that word caught up is the Greek word harpazo, where we get our English word rapture. It's the Latin word rapturus, and it means a sudden taking. It means that it's going to happen suddenly. And so it's common knowledge. And it's interesting that sometimes there are those who will come along and they will say, well, the rapture isn't in the Bible. Well, it is in the Bible. And the rapture is going to take place. And it's common knowledge that you and I are to be looking for the return of the Lord. And I believe that it can happen at any time. So here these guys know that it's going to happen at this time. You and I, as far as, as the Lord coming for his church, we don't know the day or the hour. But we can be wise in the season in which we're living in. And it's interesting that Jesus rebuked the religious leaders because they, did, they could tell and discern the weather. It's kind of like we're waiting for our first snow to come to Greeley, aren't we? And we know that that first snow is going to come, don't we? Because the leaves are turning yellow and they're starting to blow off. We know that, um, that it's getting colder. The days are getting shorter. We know that at any time there can be a storm that comes and dumps snow here in Greeley. So we know it's going to take place. And it's the same spiritually. We can know the days in which we are living in because we are living in those last days. Israel becoming a nation once again. We see other prophetic events that are coming together that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. So Jesus rebuked the religious leaders because they could not discern the coming of the Son of Man. They could discern the weather. And you and I, we are to be wise in the day in which we are living in. So here is these guys. They know that Elijah is going to be taken up and he's going to um, be leaving. And it is Elisha that says, yes, I know, and, and keep silent as he says that to them. But notice also that they start out here in verse 1, that they start in Gilgal, and then they go to Bethel. And I think that there's some application that we can make, because think about it. First of all, Gilgal. What was that Gilgal? As you look at it historically, remember that Gilgal was that place where when the children of Israel, after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that they crossed the Jordan River and they came to Gilgal. And it was at Gilgal that Joshua was told that what you do is that you circumcise all those males that weren't circumcised out in the wilderness. So there needed to be a cutting away of the flesh. And that's what happens with you and me as we humble ourselves and we come to the Lord. That there needs to be a denial of self. There needs to be uh, recognizing that we need to die to self, pick up our cross, and follow after him. 
and we're no longer following after the flesh, or we're no longer in bondage to the flesh. But before there is victory in the spirit, there needs to be a cutting away of the flesh. And even after salvation, there needs to be that work that is done, the self-reliance and, and all of this, the you know, self-focus and, and uh, you know, relying on our own intellect and coming up with our own plans. There needs to be a cutting away of the flesh because now we are to walk in the spirit. So that happened at Gilgal. And then you recall that it was Bethel. Now Bethel, again, was one of those places where one of the golden calves was placed. But if you go back further in history, that if you go to the book of Genesis, that Bethel was a place where Jacob, when he was running from his brother Esau, you might recall that he goes to that place, he pulls up a rock as a pillow, and he goes to sleep and he has a vision. And there are angels ascending and descending. And he would wake up and the Lord would reiterate that covenant with you know, Jacob that he had made with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. And Jacob, I'm going to give you all this land and all your descendants, and they're going to multiply, and you're going to be the father of a great nation. And so it was there that the Lord spoke to Jacob, and Jacob called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. God was here, and I didn't even know it. So Bethel was a very special place in their history. And just as, as we come and there's a cutting way of the flesh, then as we journey with the Lord and as we're walking with the Lord, there's a hearing from the Lord and how important it is that we continue to hear from the Lord, continue to study God's word, continue to be sensitive to the leading of the Lord. So this is, as they journey together, this is what's taken place, and I find it pretty interesting that they do that. In verse 4, And Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And as we continue with this, we see that they move on to Jericho. And of course, Jericho was the place where the battle took place. So there needs to be a cutting away of the flesh. There needs to be a hearing of God's voice, leading us, directing us, growing us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then as we are doing that, there's going to be victory in the battles that you face. And all of us face battles, don't we? All of us will face a Jericho in our life, and more than one Jericho. And as we are just depending on the Lord, and as we are hearing from the Lord, there's going to be victory in the Lord. We continue reading in verse 5. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. As they cr crossed the Jordan River here, the Jordan speaks of God's faithfulness when he brought them into the Promised Land. You see, as you go from denying yourself to cutting away the flesh, to hearing from the Lord, to doing battle for the Lord, you're going to see God's faithfulness in your life. And so verse 5, uh, he says, as Elijah is saying, the Lord's going to take me away. And, and the sons of the prophets are coming to Elijah and saying, you know that the Lord's going to take Elijah away. And he says, yes, I know, keep silent. In other words, what is Elijah saying that? He's not being mean to these guys. He's not saying, oh, shut up. You know, you guys are bugging me. What he's saying is, yes, I know that. And let the Lord do what he's going to do when he does it. There are times where we need to be still before the Lord and be silent and hear from the Lord and say, Lord, you do what you're going to do when you're going to do it in my life. And do that work that you want to do. And I just trust in you. So as we have read in verse 8, Elijah that he takes his mantle, and it was kind of like a robe, a prophet's robe, and he rolls it up and he strikes the water, and they cross over to Jordan on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over in verse 9 that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what 
may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be done, be so for you. But if not, it will not be so. So here is, as they cross the Jordan, that Elijah asks Elijah, What may I do for you? And here, Elijah, he says, I want a double portion of your anointing. And Elijah says, if you see me taken off, you know, then it's going to happen. If not, then it's not going to happen. But as I think about this, here Elijah has been mentoring and ministering to Elisha. And Elisha is going to pick up the mantle, as we're going to see that Elijah is going to be taken up in a fiery chariot. And he's going to end up doing twice as many miracles and receiving that double portion as Elijah did. But I think there is something worth considering here as we stop and we look at this. Because, you see, as I get older and as we get older, those of us who are older in the Lord, we should be ones that we want to mentor. We want to continue working with those who are younger. And you see, if the Lord tarries, that if you know, it comes to where I can't minister anymore or I can't teach the Word of God in the years ahead, that what my prayer is is that we've been raising up people to do the work of the ministry and that we would continue on doing those things. And what I pray is that, you see, Calvary Chapel isn't just built around an individual or just a pastor, but this is the work of God. And this is a movement of the Spirit and a work of the Spirit here at Calvary Chapel. And what has begun in the Spirit, I pray, is never perfected in the flesh. And that's what Paul would write to the Galatians. What has begun in the Spirit, are you going to try to perfect in the flesh? That it would continue to be a work of God. Because what happens is, is, is that if a ministry of any sort is built around a person or a program or you know, a personality, then it's going to die out. And what my prayer is, if the Lord tarries, and listen, I plan to be here as long as I can, as long as I can keep teaching the Word of God, but I'm not going to live forever. And when the Lord, you know, I pray that we all get raptured, and it'd be just great if it happened tonight. But if the Lord tarries, and then we continue on, and if the Lord was to take me home when that happens, that I pray that the ministry here would just continue on. And I pray that whoever, that person that would come along or group of leadership that comes along, that there we would see God working twice as much. It's been so incredible to watch God working over the years. And I think about how we just started in our home and what God has done and how faithful he has been and the, just the venture of faith that we've taken in this ministry. And I believe that God wants to do so much more. I really do. I believe he's just getting started. And I pray that that would continue and that we would encourage the young people and, and those who are younger. They are our future leaders and that God would work even mightily through them. I think God wants to continue to work through us. He's not done with us. He's not done with us who have been here. And he's not done with Calvary Chapel until he takes us home to be with him. And I believe that God wants to do so much more. And that's what I'm trying to say. And as I get older, I want to keep ministering, helping the younger until the Lord takes me. And I see this here modeled in such a wonderful way. And so he's saying, hey, uh, if it happens, you see me, then you're going to get a, a double anointing. In verse 11, then it happened. And it, he continued and talked. Uh, and then suddenly a chariot of fire appeared. Verse 11 with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. So Elijah ascends into heaven in a whirlwind. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? And I can't wait till the Lord comes back for us. And I pray that it is very, very soon. And I hope that we are the generation that's going to see the Lord come for his church. But we know that Elijah, it's interesting that he's taken off in this, this fiery chariot into heaven, this whirlwind that takes place. So he doesn't taste death. Now we know and we believe that Elijah is probably in the tribulation period, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes back with his church, he's 
will, at the end of the tribulation period, touch down on the Mount of Olives, and then he will establish his kingdom. We're going to come back with him riding on white horses. But in that final seven-year period, that the end of the book of Malachi, that one of the last verses of the Old Testament says that Elijah will come before the dreadful day of the Lord, the terrible and dreadful day of the Lord. So 400 years later, when John the Baptist is born, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, to the birth of John the Baptist are called the silent years. And that's 400 years to where um, it's not recorded of prophets coming into the land. God was still working, but um, there's that 400-year gap called the silent years. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene, they were asking John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not Elijah. And it was Jesus that was speaking concerning John the Baptist, that John the Baptist came in the power and spirit of Elijah. But we believe that Elijah will come before the dreadful and terrible day of the Lord and will be one of the two witnesses that we read about in Revelation chapter 11. And those two witnesses that are going to be ministering there in Jerusalem in the first half of the tribulation period, also spoken of, of Zechariah chapter 4, that those two witnesses, that they will be able to call down fire from heaven, they will be able to shut the rains from coming during that time. Who's that speak of? Speaks of Elijah that we've seen. That's his ministry. But also, they're able to turn water into blood. So other Bible scholars believe that the second witness is going to be Moses. Now, there are those who come along and say that the two witnesses are probably Elijah and Enoch. And the reason is, is because Enoch, back in Genesis chapter 5, that he walked with God and then he was no more. In other words, he was raptured. So when you look at Enoch, when you look at Elijah, they're the picture of the rapture of the church. They didn't test death. And so there are some Bible scholars that think that it has to be Elijah and Enoch that are the two witnesses because they will be eventually killed by the Antichrist in the tribulation period and it's accounted once for man to die, then the judgment. Well, I don't exactly buy that argument. Uh, it is true that um, unless the Lord raptures us, that we're going to taste death and then the judgment. But there's going to be a whole generation of Christians that are going to be raptured and we're not going to taste death. So I think that the two witnesses are Elijah, that will come before the dreadful and terrible day of the Lord, and then also Moses. So here Elijah is taken up in that fiery chariot. And then verse 14, then he took the mantle, that is Elijah, as he picked it up, and he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the water, it divided this way and that, and Elijah crossed over so Elisha has the same power that Elijah had. God was with him. And the first miracle that Elisha does was the last miracle that Elijah did. And we're going to see that a lot of the miracles that Elijah, Elisha did was very similar to Elijah. In verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They recognized that Elisha was now taking over the prophetic ministry of Elijah. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And then they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them. Therefore they sent 50 men, and they searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? So these sons of prophets, it's interesting, they knew that the rapture was going to come for Elijah. And after it happens, they see that the mantle had fallen on Elijah, but yet they're saying, let's go look for Elijah. Maybe he fell on a mountain or in a valley somewhere. And Elisha says, no, don't go. Don't go. But then when he was shamed, in other words, they were bugging him so much that he said, finally, go, get out of here. Just go look. And they look for three days, and then they come back, and Elisha said, I told you you shouldn't go. He was taken up into heaven. Believe what God's word has to say. His word will be true. And his word is going to come true for you and for me. And you know what this reminded me of a little bit? That when the rapture of the church happens, people are going to be looking for you. They're going to be looking for me. Isn't that interesting to think about? 
And they perhaps have heard, if you witness to unbelievers or witness to family members that don't know the Lord, and as, you know, we are taken away, um, you know, if it comes, the Lord comes in our lifetime, then they're going to say, well, I heard they talked about rapture, but maybe they're just gone. Maybe they went on a trip. Maybe they're just gone away some way. And I imagine it's going to be a lot of the same thing. That's what it reminded me of. But let's finish the chapter tonight. And then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from it. There shall be no more death nor barrenness. And so here he is in Jericho. The water supply is bad. They can't drink it. It's somehow it's bad to where the land is barren. They can't grow crops. So Elijah here, beginning to work miracles, what he does is he has them bring salt. He puts it in a bowl, and then he puts it in the water source, and now the water is good. It's interesting today if you go to Jericho, which is hard to do because it's right in the heart of the West Bank, but if you go to Jericho, around Jericho is some of the best fruit in the world that is grown there, out there in the desert. And it's amazing, the drip irrigation, the water that they use there, um, there, there are grape, you know, orchards that are there, um, you know, oranges, uh, oranges from Jericho, some of the best oranges in the world. Absolutely amazing what they've been able to do with that desert area. And so at one time here, Elijah, the water was bad, but he would heal the waters as he would put in the salt. And I just want to encourage you tonight, guys, that Jesus said that we're to be the salt of the world, aren't we? And then it would be Paul that would write in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. What does salt do? Salt, it causes a thirst, doesn't it? And what I pray is the words that we speak and how we live our life as we are a light, and as I just said in the beginning of this study, that we would be ones that people would look at us and it would cause a thirst for Jesus. They would be thirsty, saying, Whatever it is that you have, I want that as well. And salt also was to be a preservative. It kept, you know, corruption from spreading or meat from going bad, spoiling. Uh, you know, it was used for that. And I pray that you and I would realize that as we are a light and salt in this world, we really keep evil from really just going rampant all over the world. And it's also interesting that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Paul says that that which is restraining will continue to restrain until it is removed. And then the Antichrist is going to be revealed. You and I as the church and as believers, we're a restraining factor. Do you know that? And there's a restraining that takes place. I think that as Christians, we don't realize the important role in how um, that we are salt, that we just keep evil from just completely taking over the world. Can you imagine what it would be like if there was no Christians at all in this world or in this nation or in this city? It would be a lot different. So I want to encourage you, continue to be salt, all right? Continue to be light and continue to pray. Pray for your family. Pray for our community. Pray for our nation because we all are salt and light. And then as we finish, then he went up from there, verse 23, to Bethel. And as he was going up to the road, some youths came out to the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bearers come out of the woods and maul 42 of the youths. So when he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. So an interesting story here as we close tonight. Uh, I was going to tell James to read this to the youth group upstairs. And uh, I didn't. I'm just kidding, parents. But you read this and you think, you know, here's some kids coming out and saying, hey, you baldy, hey, you baldy. And, you know, Elijah, you didn't mess with him. This mean guy, he pronounces a curse, and then these bears come out and maul uh, these youths. And you look at it, and you think, what's up with all of this? Um, as we read the word youths, they're young men, and they're coming out, and they're mocking Elijah. They're mocking God. And we don't know exactly why the curse. It could very well be that Elisha is saving his own life, that these guys, and the indication is, and some you know, scholars have suggested that his life is in danger. So these bears come out and, and maul these guys. But whatever it is, they were cursing God. 
They were cursing Elijah. They were probably being a threat to Elijah, and God was protecting Elisha, and the bears come out, and, um, and unfortunately, judgment comes on these guys. The reason that we want to be salt and light is because judgment will come to those who reject Jesus Christ. God is a God of love, but in that love, he will judge sin. And the good news for you and for me is Jesus took the judgment and the punishment for us on Calvary's cross. So that's why we rejoice. But I just want to encourage you, Calvary Chapel, that we do have the ministry of reconciliation. To continue to give the love and the truth of Jesus Christ to others, to be salt and light, knowing that the Lord's going to come for us, that he's going to be faithful. You keep, you know, dying to self. You be one that you continue to hear of the Lord. You be one that you're going to see the faithfulness of the Lord. And you continue to let the Lord work in your life in a very powerful way. And you will see that because he is faithful and just and true and continue to be salt and light to others. So, Father, we thank you for just this lesson that we've learned tonight and, and uh, the Bible study that we've had. I thank you for, again, those coming out. And uh, there's a lot of other things that we could be doing on a Wednesday night, watching TV, um, just relaxing. And, and that's, you know, something because we've had a long day. But, Lord, I thank you that... We've been refreshed in your word and been reminded of these things. And Lord, I do pray that we would continue to just look to you and trust in you and your word. And Father, that um, we wouldn't just rely on ourselves, and that, but there would be every day more a dying to self. And Lord, that there would be just victory in the spirit as we hear your voice, as we wait on you and see your faithfulness. And Father, I pray for us that we would be salt and light, all of us, to a lost and dying world, to a world that mocks God more, to a world that's not interested in truth, to a world that uh, seeks its own, rebels against you, Lord. Father, this is a day of grace because we see the things going on all around us that point to your soon return. And we know that promise is given to us. And we don't know the day or the hour that you're going to come for us, Lord, but we know that we're living in the last days. And may we be wise that's looking for our master's return. And Lord, may we just hold on to that promise. And just as we saw in John, in, as he writes in his first epistle, that he who has this hope, that is when we see you in the coming of the Lord, purifies himself. So Lord, may we be salt causing a thirst in people's lives to come and, and um, just see the reality of Jesus in us. And may they thirst for that. And Lord, may we be ones to continue to pray because there's a lot of darkness and evil and there's power in prayer. We need to pray for our community and we do. We pray for our nation that in a few weeks we're going to be electing new leaders. And it grieves us when we see the the road that we're on in our nation economically and spiritually, morally, we're in such decline. And I pray that we would be a nation that recognize your blessings and how we need to turn to you and repent and that we need your help, Lord. And Lord, I pray that, um, that we would be a light in our workplace if people would look at us and say, there's a man of God or a woman of God because we stand for truth. And we speak of the truth of Jesus and the love of Jesus. And that we wouldn't get off the wall or come down from the hill because the world's screaming at us to do that. But just continue on with you. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had together tonight. Bless the rest of our week. Be with those who need a special touch.